It's the 1730s, Massachusetts. The church is marked by apathy and prayerlessness. A young preacher named Jonathan Edwards begins preaching the gospel. And around 300 people in his tiny town of 1,100, 300 people come to Christ and experience life in Jesus. Well, news spreads like wildfire, and pretty soon hundreds of towns in the American colonies experience the same thing as thousands of people are convicted of their sin and they turn to God through Christ. You know, the events that happened in the 1730s and 40s in the American colonies and in England, it's referred to as the Great Awakening. And its effects are still felt to this day. And I love the word awakening because that describes exactly what happened. People were asleep spiritually, and God woke them up to a new reality that they had not experienced, and they saw God, and they were never the same. I remember several years ago, it was my birthday, I was sleeping in a little bit, and one of my children was just so eager to celebrate. Birthdays are a big deal, and so she's downstairs They've made breakfast. She has the the task of going and waking dad up. And she's just so excited. And she comes up the stairs and into my bedroom where I'm sound asleep. And she, she comes over right beside me and leans over. And into my ear, she says, happy birthday. I was like, ah. Pretty sure my heart rate was like here, you know, all day. When she did that, I was awake. (laughs) And that kind of experience happens to us. Maybe you have a story like that. But but that kind of experience can happen to us spiritually too. Where all of a sudden we're jolted awake and we're experiencing God. We're seeing a truth about God in a new way and we're never the same. Can you recall a time in your life like that where there was an awakening? I remember I was 18 years old. I was at a summer camp. And over that six-week period of time, God changed me. I mean, I, I left from that camp in East Texas a different person. I had a passion for God, ownership of my faith. I valued community. I was a different person. God woke me up. I remember five years ago, I went through a a nine-month period of time, a situational depression, and it was awful. And somehow in the midst of that and the brokenness and the wrestling, God changed me. And it felt like on the other end, I kind of woke up and I was seeing God in a new way. You have an experience like that where you woke up? Sometimes in history... There are experiences like that, not for individuals, but for a whole group of people where there is a collective waking up to the reality of God and people are transformed, just like Massachusetts in the 1930s. In 1906, Los Angeles, Azusa Street, an African-American pastor named William Seymour was turned away from a pastoral position at a, job, at a church. He was actually locked out of the building. 
And he began hosting these prayer meetings on Azusa Street. And more and more people were coming and turning their lives to Christ and inviting the Holy Spirit to work. And God did something extraordinary in 1906. Rewind 500 years, it's Germany in the 1500s. Church is legalistic. There's just no vitality to Christians. And a guy named Martin Luther gets arrested by the grace of God, and it changes him. And he makes a bold stand for what he believes. And you know the story. A revolution starts. The printing press is invented. The Bible is distributed. And it changes the landscape of Christianity throughout the world. You see, there's these moments in history where it's almost like God to an entire group of people comes close and leans over and says, wake up! And people are never the same. They're jolted into this new reality. God transforms them. Now, let me ask you a, a question this morning. Why does that happen sometimes and not other times? I mean, what's different about Germany in the 1500s, Massachusetts, the 1730s, Los Angeles in the 19, early 1900s? What's, what's different? What was happening behind the scenes? What led to that moment? Did the, the people, the believers in Christ, did they play any part in that? And, and here's why these questions and wrestling with this matters. Here's why it matters. Because don't you want awakening in your life and in our world today? I mean, I, I know I do. I don't want to be the same person in 10 years, in 20 years, 50. I don't want to be the same person. I want God to keep working in me and waking my soul up to the reality of who he is. And I want for our church and our community and our country, and I, don't, I know I'm not alone, and in our world, for people to be woken up to the reality of who God is more and more. Don't you want that? And so what do we do? I mean, what can we learn about those moments throughout history and apply to our own lives? Do we have a part to play? And if so, what is it? Well, before Azusa Street, before Jonathan Edwards, long before Germany in the 1500s, a spiritual awakening happened in one of the most unlikely places ever. If you have your Bible, I want to invite you to turn to Jonah chapter 3, and we're going to explore that today. Jonah chapter 3. You know, we're jumping in halfway into a fascinating story. And if you haven't been here, let me catch you up. God comes to a prophet in Israel named Jonah. And God says, Jonah, I want you to go on a mission to Nineveh, which was part of the Assyrian Empire. Jonah would have viewed the Assyrians and the Ninevites in particular as awful people that he wanted nothing to do with. They were violent. They were a political enemy of Israel. And so Jonah does what most of us would do. He runs the other way. He actually tries to sail 2,000 miles in the opposite direction. And God pursues Jonah, sending a storm after him on the sea. And these desperate sailors who are on this boat with Jonah, they don't know what to do. And they end up throwing Jonah into the water. And God pursues Jonah further still by sending a great fish 
that swallows Jonah. He's still alive and he's in the belly of the beast for three days. And while he is there, his perspective changes. And his heart remains hard in some ways as we're gonna see today. But his perspective changes. And after those three days, this fish throws him up onto dry land, kind of a gross image. And then we get to verse one of chapter three. And here is what we read. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Now, this phrase, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, it's the exact same Hebrew structure. It's the same sentence as the very first verse of the book. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. But here, we have the phrase, a second time. Now, it's so easy for us. We just read past this, but, but just stop for a moment. Our God is a God who comes to this prodigal prophet, this rebellious, hard-hearted, stubborn prophet a second time. Our God is the God of the second chance who comes to us a second time and a third time. I heard a story about Thomas Edison. He was working on this crazy contraption called the light bulb. And his entire team spent 24 hours working on it. And they were done finally, and he gave the light bulb to a young boy helper. And, and the young boy had to carry the light bulb up the stairs from the shop, and he was watching every step and trying to be so careful. And you probably have guessed what happened. The boy, he got to the top of the steps, and he dropped the light bulb. It shattered. And Edison and his team spent the next 24 hours making another one. And the story goes that that second light bulb, when it was completed, Thomas Edison, he went to that same young boy and handed it to him. So will you take this upstairs? And that is exactly what God is like. Listen, in the story, God hands his precious light bulb this message that he wants delivered to the Ninevites. He hands it to Jonah a second it's remarkable. This is what God says to Jonah. He says this, go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. So a second time, go. Now, how is Jonah going to respond? Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Woohoo! Jonah, he did something right. He went to Nineveh, the story goes on, and it says, Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Now, this word for large in Hebrew, it can also be translated as great, and it really means great in size, so it can mean large, but also it means great in importance. So you have a decision here. Is this, this is a large city or this is an important city? And the truth is it's both. It's large, but it's also important not only to Assyria, but to God, right? Very important to God. So Jonah, he journeys a, a third of the way in. Look at the next verse. It says, he began by going a day's journey into the city. So he goes a third of the way in, and then he starts preaching. And so Jonah is going to give this sermon. Look at the, the sermon that Jonah gives. The next verse, it says this. It says, 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. 
That's what Jonah said. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's eight words in English. It's only five words in Hebrew. The shortest sermon ever. Some of you would love that if I preached a five-word sermon and said, okay, go to Chili's or whatever you want to do. I'm not going to do that today. Sorry to disappoint. You know, many people believe that Jonah used a lot more words than this, but that these five words, this is a summary of what he said. This is basically the essence of the message that he delivered. Now, whether or not this is literally all he said or this is a summary of it, what's missing? I want you to look at the message. What's missing? 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. There's nothing about God in here. There's nothing about how God wants the Ninevites to respond. In fact, there's no hope of them responding at all, you know, of changing God's mind. I mean, it's like a foregone conclusion. Nineveh will be overthrown. There's nothing you can do about it. There's no hope. I mean, if I was going to give this sermon a grade, I would give it an F. This is terrible. And yet, look at what happened. Very next verse, the Ninevites believed God. The Ninevites believed God. And they, note, it doesn't say they believed the message. No, they actually believed God. And that word for believed, it implies a degree of trust. They entrusted themselves to some degree to this God. This is remarkable, isn't it? Jonah walks a third of the way into the city, gives the worst sermon ever, and the whole city believes in God. And I tell you, one of the things we've got to get when we read this is that God uses broken, imperfect, flawed, limited people to accomplish his purposes. I mean, make no mistake, sometimes you read a children's book and it, it kind of, Jonah's the hero of the story. Jonah is not the hero of this story. Jonah, in this book, if you look at it as a whole, he's rebellious, he's prideful, he has racist tendencies, he's got a hard, stubborn heart, he's got a temper, and yet God uses him to play a pivotal part in one of the biggest revivals that has ever happened with his worst sermon <laughs> ever. It's unbelievable. I mean, and, and do you know today, do you know that God wants to use you to help accomplish his purposes in spite of your flaws, your weaknesses, and in some ways through your weaknesses because his power is made perfect in your weakness. It's amazing. So we read, the people believed. Not only did they believe, look, it says this. It says, a fast was proclaimed in all of them. Again, this is the whole city from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. Sackcloth was a thick, coarse cloth made usually with goat's hair. And putting on sackcloth was kind of a, a symbolic, cultural way of, of saying, I'm rejecting the earthly comforts around me, and I'm in a process of mourning, and I'm humbling myself 
before God. And it's meant to reflect kind of a change in attitude and in heart. And everybody did this. I don't know how they had enough sackcloth in the whole city. Everybody did this from the greatest to the least. So no person was exempt, including the king. Look at the very next verse. It says, when Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. So he goes a step further. Not only does he put on sackcloth, he sits in the dust or the ashes. And then the king, he issues a decree. And this is what the king says. Do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. And let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. He, he, he calls, this is just so staggering to think about. He calls for a nationwide recognition of their sin and for everybody to turn from their sin. Now, why? Why is he so motivated? Look at the very next verse. It says, who knows? This is the king speaking. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. If you write in your Bible, underline that word compassion. The central attribute of God that this book is trying to put on display is compassion. And it's remarkable that the person in the whole book with the clearest insight into the compassion of God is the king, is the leader of the most wicked, pagan, godless city that Jonah or any Israelite could think of. Isn't that amazing? And, and details like that are not irrelevant. Remember, this book is prophetic literature. It comes to Israel as a rebuke. And the, the primary rebuke was that Israel began to see themselves, they were God's treasured possession, they began to see themselves as better than the other nations, and especially the Assyrians and the Ninevites. And this story, I mean, the way it unfolds, it's the pagan sailors who pray first and who worship God. It's the Ninevites who believe God when Jonah did not. And it's the king of Nineveh who says, God is compassionate. And all of this is meant to land as a rebuke to Israel. And it's meant to land as a warning for us as God's people. Because there's a tendency for God's people to always look down on outsiders. And here's the warning with the king of Nineveh, his changing heart. Here's the, here's the warning for us. Sometimes the people that we think are the furthest from God can actually be more open and responsive to God than we are. Sometimes the people that we think are so lost, have no hope, they actually have hearts that are ready to receive truth and respond to it in a way that, that ours aren't, that Israel's wasn't. So he says, who knows? If we repent, maybe God will change his mind. And the next verse, it, it says this. It says, when God saw what they did and how they turned... From their evil ways, he relented 
and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Now, let's kind of zoom out. You know, it's staggering what happens in Nineveh, isn't it? The, the only equivalent, I was trying to think this week, in the, in the United States would be Las Vegas, right? I mean, just imagine some preacher goes to Las Vegas, and he's not a very good preacher, and he, and he walks into Las Vegas, and he starts being like, 40 more days, Las Vegas is going to be burned to the ground, and the whole city is convicted of their sin, and they all start grieving over it and trying to follow God, and they believe in God. And then the mayor of Las Vegas, he hears the sermon, and he's like, oh, my goodness, and he gets upset, and he actually issues new legislation for the whole city. He says, if you're going to live in Las Vegas, then you have to worship God, and you have to turn away from all of your wicked ways. It's unbelievable, isn't it, to think about. So when we, when we really lean into that, just the reality, the sheer fact that this entire city believed God and their hearts were changed. What do we learn from that? How does that help us today in our desire for spiritual awakening? I'm not a, a very good cook. In fact, you know, if, if my wife is leaving and I'm in charge of dinner, my kids know it's one of three things. Leftovers, I pull everything out and I say, just pick three things. It's like I grab anything I can out of the fridge. So leftovers, sandwiches, or breakfast for dinner. It's my specialty, right? But even in my limited abilities as a cook, I know that ingredients matter. I mean, if you, if you get started on trying to cook something, make a recipe, and you don't have the right ingredients, you're stuck. And so I kind of want to use that as a framework for thinking about this question. What are the ingredients for spiritual awakening? For spiritual awakening to happen, what, what needs to, to be present? What needs to be a part of it? And so I just want to, the rest of our time, pull out from this text three ingredients of spiritual awakening. And here's the first one, and this is the most important one, divine activity. Spiritual awakenings only happen if divine activity is going on. I mean, how do you explain what happened in Nineveh that day? The only way to explain it is God. You can't say, wow, that was a great messenger. You can't say that was a great message. That was a great presentation. Both were bad. And the entire city was convicted of their sin and repented and believed. Again, the only explanation is God. And, and many of us, and when we think about this, we think, yeah, I mean, sure, God was at work in Nineveh and Massachusetts and the Great Awakening, sure. But what the Bible says to us is that for any level of, of spiritual awakening in you, in your family, in our city, in the world, for any measure of spiritual awakening to take place, God has to be involved. You know, Paul, he's writing to the Corinthian church and he's writing about his ministry and fruitfulness and spiritual growth. And this is what he says. He says this, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. Spiritual growth comes from God. I planted Apollos watered, but God made it grow. 
Notice he doesn't say, you know what, there was a great presentation or there was a great messenger. No, the author of growth is God. And then he wants to be so clear that he says it again in the next verse. He says, so neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. Do you have that orientation to spiritual growth? That for, for your life to be different a year from now, you know, for, for any growth to happen, God has to be involved. I, I love the story that David Platt tells about the time he was in seminary. He had a professor. He pulled all of his students out of class. He took them to a cemetery. And all these you know, guys and girls in their 20s, knowing a lot of theology, he had them one at a time stand up and preach to the graves and tell the people who were buried there, the dead bodies, to, to rise from the dead. And he made them do it. I mean, what did they do? I don't know. But, the, but one by one, they stood up and they tried to command the, the dead to rise and they failed. And then he stood up, the professor, and he said, here's the lesson. Speaking to all these students, he said, when you stand up and preach in your churches or whatever ministry God gives you, it is exactly like this if the Spirit of God is not involved. It's like you go into a graveyard and say, hey, get up out of the ground. Nothing is going to happen. And so the first thing we've got to realize about spiritual awakenings is that they happen, and they only happen if God is involved. And that reality ought to produce dependence in us. We say, oh God, how we need you, right? So the first ingredient of spiritual awakenings is divine activity. The second that we see in this text is this, it's brokenness over sin. The message that God gave Jonah to deliver was a message of judgment, I want you to look at the original mandate. God says, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Now, how does this land for you? That God comes to people and to us to some degree as a God of judgment. This idea that God sees our wickedness and he holds us accountable. This is anathema in our culture today. I mean, we don't, we don't want God to hold us accountable. What's right for me is right for me. I mean, I'm my own judge. So this idea is just repudiated by our culture today. But even for Christians, this is uncomfortable, isn't it? Because how do I reconcile God as a judge with God's love and with Jesus? Now, many of us, we see God's judgment or his justice and God's love as on opposite ends of the spectrum. There's a tension. There's, you know, they're opposed to one another. But biblically, God's judgment is an expression of his love. I want to give you a quick illustration I heard from Tim Mackey that's helped me as I've wrestled with this. I want you to imagine you're walking downtown. You're White Duck Taco, or you're going to Label, you're, you're downtown, and you're walking by Founders Park, and you look over, and you see a kid, he's probably second grader, seven, eight years old, and you see him, and he's, he's you know, at that circle at the bottom of Founders Park, and he's got four kids surrounding him, and they look a little bit older. I mean, they're probably fifth graders, they're 12, and these four older boys are pushing him. 
and they're laughing at him. And then you see one of the older boys pull off his backpack and rifle through it, and then another kid pushes him down to the ground. And you're watching this whole thing about 20 feet away. What is the loving response in that moment? It's not to say, ah, you know, kids will be kids. It's not to just walk away, go eat dinner. What's the loving response? It's to get involved, right? It's to render a judgment and to say the way that they are treating him is not okay. And I'm going to go and I'm going to try to stop it. And it's not just loving for the kid who's being picked on. It's loving for the whole group. Because if those boys, if those older boys, if they treat people that way, they're going to ruin their lives. So in love, you're compelled. You make a judgment and you go and you try to stop it. Listen, you don't have to be a scholar to know our world is a broken place. The way we treat each other in our world is not okay. And so the question is, what does God do about it? How does God respond? God does not say, ah, humans will be humans. No, God comes as a God of judgment because he loves this world and he loves the people in this world. You see, God, for God to stay away would be apathy. You see, the opposite of love is apathy. It's not judgment. God comes and holds us accountable because he loves us and he loves this world. Now, you know, for, for some of us, maybe you're tracking with this and maybe you're even saying, you know, I agree and amen, brother. But, but that is because most of us, we, when we picture God as a God of judgment, it's for other people, isn't it? Just be honest. We have this interesting duplicitous relationship with God. We want justice for others and judgment, and we want mercy for us. But what if, and I'm, you know, you may have liked the sermon to this point, and then you're going to be like, that was terrible. You know, I'm risking that by, by this next question. But, but listen, what if part of what is wrong with the world is you and me? What if, in some ways, we're the bullies on the playground? That we've taken God's world and God's people and we've done things, we've harmed. You see, <clears throat> we would much rather focus on someone else, right? And, and their sin and they're the problem. But here's what's true about spiritual awakenings. There is always a brokenness over your sin. And, and it's our sin. I mean, we, you know, I'm, I'm grieved by other sin, but I'm grieved and broken over my sin. And for renewal, for awakening to happen, that is where it starts. And so, you know, for us, listen, the, the, the prayer is, God, we need awakening. We need spiritual awakening. My family, my church, community, our country, we need it. But start with me. Can you pray that today? Honestly, can you say, God, we need to be transformed. We need to wake up, but start with me. See, to the degree that we really believe that, that we are part of the problem, we will be humble and broken to the degree where God can, God can work. And that's what God wants from us, right? It's, it's not sacrifice, Psalm 51, a broken and contrite heart I will not despise. So the second piece of this is 
brokenness over sin. And again, gosh, it's so much easier to focus on your spouse, to focus on your kids, your crazy uncle, your boss, your neighbor. It's so much easier, isn't it, to focus on the people in our country or in your neighborhood who have different beliefs than you, who have a different political viewpoint than you. It's so much easier than to say, no, God, start with me. But that's where this begins. And the third and final piece of spiritual awakening is a turning to God. A turning to God. It's not just a brokenness. I want you to see in the text, verse 8, let everyone turn from his evil way, from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And then verse 10, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil way. So we see this verb, shub, in Hebrew or turned in English. It shows up over and over and over. Now, that word is translated repent or repentance Oftentimes, and I don't know how that word comes across to you. That word has been used in religious culture lots of different ways. One of the ways we use that word repentance sometimes is to say, in order to be saved, you have to repent. And by repent, I mean you have to turn from your sin and stop sinning. And maybe you heard that. And I just want to say, I fundamentally reject that idea. In Scripture, you never have to stop sinning or clean up your life to be accepted by God, then it wouldn't be grace. So, so what then is repentance? Because it's in the Bible. What is it? Well, biblically, repentance is, it's, it is a turning from sin, but it's even more, it's about a turning to Christ, turning to God, and this is so important because, again, some of us, we grew up in traditions that emphasized repentance. And here's what it looked like. I'm struggling with sin, and I've got to repent. So I turn from my sin, and I try really hard to go the other way. And so I'm going the other way, but then I find something else I'm struggling with. Or maybe it's the same thing. And now i got to turn from that, and i got to go the other way. And then it's just this hamster wheel of turning and over and over. And that's exhausting. That is not grace. And, and it's fruitless because you can't change yourself, not through sheer willpower. Repentance, biblically, is a turning to God. And it's a reorienting my life to him, to his values, to his will and his ways. God, I'm turning. And this is why we're not done repenting. You know, at any point in our lives, we're always in need of turning to God we're broken over our sin. We turn to God, not because we need to be saved and we have to stop sinning, but because we want him to work in us, to make us more like Jesus. The Ninevites, they, they didn't just get sad about their sin. They turned from their wicked ways to God, to his love, to his grace. So spiritual awakening, it, it, listen, there's always a turning, there's a, there's a movement towards God. It's not just about, oh, my sin. Many of us, we get so much more focused on our sin than we do our Savior, than we do God. So for spiritual awakening in, in you and in me and in our, in our world, this text is trying to say, this is what has to happen, divine activity, brokenness over your sin, and a turning to God. What do we do with that today? You know, as, as we wrap up, how do we apply this to our lives? Well, if you had to take 
the ideas in this chapter and really express it into three words that God wants to cultivate in us. I believe it would be this. It would be God wants to cultivate us in dependence, in contrition, and in responsiveness. Dependence is, God, I need you. I can't change myself. I can't change my kids. I can't change my world. For anybody to change God, we need you. And so, God, would you please work in me? It's a, it's a posture of dependence. Secondly, contrition, where we have a genuine sadness over our sin. Now, this is not condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So that's not this. But, but there is a brokenness over my sin. Not that person over there, but me. And then third, there's a responsiveness. It's, it's, a, it's a turning to God. It's, it's not just I'm aware of my sin and it bumps me out. It's, God, how can I be more aligned with you and your heart? So let me ask you this week, you know, as, you, as you go, what might be one of these three words that you can pray for and ask God? Say, God, would you please cultivate this in me? God, I need to live in dependence on you, and I'm not. God, I need this con healthy contrition. Lord, I, I need to be more responsive to you, to your word, because I read it, but I just don't turn, and God, help me. What, what is that for you? I want to encourage you to, to think about that. And so we want to end a little bit differently today. I want to give us a few minutes to pray. I'm going to give three minutes and, and just invite you to come to God with where, where you're at and to pray. And, and, and here's the prayer. It, you know, he, here is the starting point. It's God, wake us up and start with me. And then you, you, you come to God and you say, God, would you help produce these things in me for your glory and for my good? Lord, help and so let me just give us a few minutes just to do that. And, and wherever you're at, you know, some of you with God, you might just want to take this time and just sit in silence and reflection. You're, you may not be ready to pray this. But for all of us, I just want to encourage you, use this time to come and meet God. Come as you are. Let's do that now.
God, would you give us the courage to pray, Lord, wake us up and start with me and give us the sensitivity of spirit to know what that looks like for each and every one of us. God, you meet us right where we are. And so, Lord, would you meet us in this moment and would you work in us, God? Would you lead us, help us to become the kind of people that you have called us to be? We thank you that it's all grace. That you are a God who's not distant, disconnected. You're a God who loves us. And we can only do this and, and we can only live in a way that's pleasing to you. We can only do that by your grace and through your spirit. So God, would you come and empower us? We thank you that you are the author of our salvation. You're the one we look to. And so Father, we just respond to you now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.